Welcome to Thought Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Thought Hack Podcast. Uh, really quick, I'd love to give a shout out to Catalyst Case. So I've been wanting to have a conversation because we sat down like a couple of weeks back and we had a really cool off mic conversation that could have been the podcast in itself. Sure. And you very humbly kind of dropped, they're, they're very humble brags. It wasn't really bragging, but it was like stuff that you kind of flippantly just kind of, uh, whatever, but it was really a big deal to me because I'm a huge hip hop nerd. But, um, Bill Stephanie, I'm, I'm saying that correctly, right? Mm-hmm. Is, is with us today. So first and foremost, I'd like to thank you for, for coming out and taking the time to hang out with me and let me, uh, kind of pick your brain a bit. Um, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And, and you've been very patient because we had technical difficulties and then it was super patient guy. Very Jedi like. Not, not, not a problem. Very professional here. Thank you very much. Um, so Bill, before we go into everything, cause there's a lot I want to talk to you about your background. Um, currently we met because you're working with Mochify, but you have uh, a long, like story history that that starts i would say with that picture you showed me a couple weeks back and um russell simmons and and def jam yeah yeah um you know i i think i benefit from uh, a number of factors of just being born in the early 1960s in the new york city area when you know all sorts of things are are happening uh, it's the uh the dawn of the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and um you know being of of african american descent and and proud heritage to be one of the first children that uh gained benefit from uh the the fights of many years but specifically those from the 50s and 60s so you know, being those kids, along with being in the New York area and having close proximity to TV stations and radio stations and, and, and networks. Was it and, that and easy media. back then? Um, to, to listen to WBLS in, in the New York area and watch great TV channels that, that we had. You know, TV was very limited back then in that we only had VHF channels of two, four, let's see if I remember five, seven, eleven, and thirteen and some UHF stations. Mm-hmm. Um so rather than being in a small marketplace where you may have had access to, to one small little TV station or even just radio, let's say you were in the Midwest or Southwest or even in the South we were in the biggest media market still in the 1960s in the globe, on the globe. So being in New York, civil rights movement, um, having uh, parents who were incredibly uh, dedicated to um, their, uh, their responsibilities for raising children and growing up in 
communities where where that was also um, a tremendous value. You know, the, I I don't think I had enough um, enough room to fail. You know that folks actually provided all the tools was, necessary because I don't I don't really believe in luck but i do feel like there's sometimes this like uh kismet where there's just like everything in tune with what you're doing is happening the way it is supposed to happen or everything's happening like optimally all at the same time yeah you have to you can believe in luck you can believe in divine intervention but yeah i I like to talk about this that um for those of us who were of the late 50s early 60s or just 60s i would say um generations and and i include folks like spike lee mm-hmm. uh chris rock you can point to prince michael jackson um you know, i would frame that picture you had in your phone which is great like you oh, have yeah, everybody yeah. in that sure, picture sure 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 but you know, if um, if you're born in in that specific, I think late fifties going to about nineteen seventy ish, air pocket, you think about it, no slavery, no Jim Crow, and no crack. So you have parents who are post World War Two. Who are accessing opportunities that black people previously, sorry for that, mm. that black people previously, um, were unable and were disconnected from accessing. And, you know, we wind up being the children of those parents who start to experience very real opportunity. Um, uh, and again, I, I make the argument it's also prior to, some of the decline, I think, that we've seen over the course of the past several decades within the uh, within our communities. So we always thought about possibility, you know, rather than improbability or impossible impossibility. The and I think I may have mentioned this to you uh, when we spoke before that um, the prom song for my high school. In 1980 was Ain't No Stopping Us Now by McFadden and Whitehead. And that's really, I think, the, the theme for those of us who came up during that era. Yes, you know, we knew Very optimistic problems from era, the beginning, yeah. but hey, nothing's going to get in our way. Uh, another song from that time from around 1982, Keep On mm-hmm. by, uh, the group D Train. You know, just incredible optimism that, that there were, successes from the challenges of against racism and discrimination and that gave us full full engines and and fuel to move society forward and to move our community forward so we are ready to go so do you what happened to that optimism (laughs) do you feel like i mean and we're i'm going to speak about like african-americans at at large, and we're going to kind of make the generalization before we we focus on you specifically. Sure. But where did that optimism go? That's a great question. Um, I think it still exists. 
to some degree, to some measure. And it's, I think it's hard for me, um, you know, at, uh, at my uh, advanced position in life now to make a declaration whether or not it exists at the same level it did when I was 18, 19, 20. You know, versus what what happens today. I, you know, I, I would, you know, I'd have to ask my kids. I I'll say okay. What what I will say is there is an optimism now. Mm-hmm. There is a sort yeah. of optimism now. But look I at, feel look like at, look at what you're doing. Yeah. Look, look at what's going on here. But generally, generation, generation. Uh, I'm, I'm G- generationally, generationally. Um, I feel like we're we're not going to break everyone down to like you know millennials and everything because I feel like labels are kind of weird. Yeah. But I feel like the optimism back then still came with a a context and there was a responsibility attached to it. Whereas like we're coming off of the back of something that was like pretty serious and so on and so forth. Whereas some of the optimism now might be a little bit more uh, entrenched in like a entitlement or something like it's a That's different a vibe yeah it's a, well um you know if i if i had to hazard a guess mm. in terms of, of differences maybe the optimism tends to be more individualized today so you'll find somebody who's accomplished and developed a, a project a business um a, a work of art um, and on an individual basis, you know, we, we give them all their flowers for that. What you're doing here. Um, and, and we're seeing more and more of that. I would say perhaps the, the slight difference may be environmental that 30, 40 years ago, you know, we, we still had parents who were essentially Orthodox Christians. Yeah. Yeah. So the notion of putting one foot in front of the other via hope was really religiously based. So, and that was just part of the overall culture. You know, I, I had friends that, that I grew up with, um, who you didn't see every day because they were in church with their, with their grandmother, with their, their parents, so forth. So even for those households who weren't as religious as those folks were, nonetheless, that effect of their behavior reverberated throughout the community. So, you know, I, I had teachers who were, were in essence, Bible study teachers, Orthodox Christians them, themselves. There were certain sectors on Long Island of, of folks who were in the nation too as well. So the religiosity of the community, of the community, number one, gave structure, gave a, a sense of hope and, and I think belief and, and a sense of guidance too, which fuel perhaps some of the optimism versus what may happen today where I don't know if, uh, you know, some of those, those, uh, those undergirding factors exist as much. And your optimism as an individual, has that sort of survived the, I guess the, the time, like, you know, the decades, I mean, because you mentioned the crack epidemic and all that other mm-hmm. stuff. Do you maintain that optimism today? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I have to, you know, I'm a dad. Yeah. So, um, you gotta hope for the best. Yeah. Hey, you know, whether it's Corona or, or, yeah, you know, right whatever, man, you, you know, you, you think, all right, well, we'll get over this and, and we'll get to, to the next destination. The, the alternative is like, yeah. Not good. Wanna, yeah. You don't want to think about that. Yeah. So 
besides the the stuff with Def Jam, which I definitely want to get back to, um, and we we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to. Um, your resume includes like you know basically working with like you know groups, different hip hop backgrounds, so on and so forth. Specifically, I guess we're gonna mention uh, Public Enemy, and they've been in the news lately. Um, what what do you think it is about groups before we we focus on public enemy or whatever is going on what do you think it is about like bands once they get together or something like that that it just because i mean I'm, you you know these guys personally i, I can only like guess but that i guess has them breaking up over a certain amount of time is it because they're spending too much time together or is this like something that eventually is just doomed to not work out well yeah um you know, bands are, are, are collectives and, and, and organizations and units, and they are subject to the uh, the variables and, and factors that, that break up companies, partnerships, families, mm-hmm. marriages. Um, you know, we're, we're human, even when we're in a cool group. So whether those factors are economic Emotional, spiritual, ideological, mm-hmm. geographical. You know, you get, and it's not necessarily even with PE. I think there's some element, uh, for them where this, uh, might be a factor, but, um, you know, there are great groups and bands where they do so well that one member lives in Ireland, one lives in the Bahamas, and one lives in California. Yeah. And, you know, how do you navigate that? And there are. You don't think that'd be better? I feel like I'm, I'm close to certain members of my family because we spend so much time apart. So every time we get together, it's kind of like, you know, we're, we're still in that, like, you know, honeymoon space because we never moved out of that. We, we kind of get away every time we get back together. It's a good time because we don't have time to fight. We, Mm -hmm. we spend so much time apart. By the time we get together, we're just catching up. We're having a good time. We're doing whatever we got to do, and then we're we're going our separate ways again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it depends because you might have you know one member, and you know I've seen this with uh, with groups where you know one member has has saved well and done well and invested well and doesn't have to work, doesn't have to go on the road. You get to the age of of you know over forty. Going to your 50s, 60s, 70s, as, as we see with some of the groups today. Um, and, you know, the road isn't as enticing as it was when you were a teenager or in your 20s. And you made all this money and you're living on some estate or some farm. You don't want to leave there. Versus you might have a member who did not invest or had several divorces, may have child support issues, may have some tax issues. That member has to tour. Even and the, he depends on you. And he completely depends on you to get out there and sing those hits that you had on the radio in 1982. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a push-pull even within an organization where the, the um, uh, objectives mm-hmm. are not aligned. The labels didn't have something in place back then, like some type of, like, financial education thing where it was like, hey, guys, no, like, you know, no? No, no. Yeah, you, you know, there's... um. You know, there's a, a, a tendency for us. Now, number one, you know, when you're uh, dealing with young people and young creative people, 
who are in their late teens and, and early twenties, you know, you know, financial management, especially if they're coming from a point of disadvantage to, Oh, okay. I have a hit record on the radio and now this club promoter is going to pay me $15,000 for this appearance. And I'm talking about late seventies, early eighties. You're just thinking about that money. You know, you're not thinking about futures or investment or sustainability or anything. You're thinking about that cash money and how I mean, can I live next? 15 grand for a parents is still a lot now. And that's what you – give you an idea. So if you had in 1984 um, a hit song just here in New York, mm-hmm. nowhere else – Getting played on, you know, let me age myself, on the radio stations of, of that day, WBLS mm-hmm. 107.5, mm-hmm. 98.7 KISS FM, 92 KTU, 1600 WWRL. All these stations are playing um, your, your music, and you might even have a video out it at that point playing on Video Music Box mm-hmm. um, or New York City Hot Tracks on, on ABC. So... Your one hit now gives you the advantage of playing what was a robust club scene around 1984, 85, the Roxy in, in Manhattan on 18th Street, Club Encore in Jamaica, uh, Queens, um, uh, roller skating, uh, rinks also in Queens, uh, playing the fever in the Bronx, come out to Zanzibar here in, in Newark. You, you had about, 20 to 40 potential clubs that you could play paying you anywhere from $2,500 to $15,000 per hit. You could also wind up playing about three or four of those clubs within one night. You're just going from one performance uh, to another. Where if you were Houdini or or Curtis Blow or Grandmaster Flash and the Furies 5, you could see $25,000. Thirty thousand dollars cash money from that weekend alone, just from that that hit song. So, the opportunity, just by virtue of folks having such passion for the music, the scene itself that had a club economy that we you know don't don't see around today, just gave fluid access to um, to cash for people who were young and probably not prepared for it. That's, I mean, it, it, it's really unfortunate to think about because, I mean, usually when, when wealth comes into, um, any community, you could hope to see, like, you know, advances or so on and so forth, like, you know, some type of growth or investment locally. And, like, I don't, I, I've just never really seen that with, like, I think, and I might be off because I, I read these statistics like a while ago, but um, African-Americans, I think the dollar circulates only once in our community before it leaves out. And then um, there was something about like nine times out of 10, when we basically move out of a certain tax bracket, we don't really stay and invest in the community. We kind of just move out and try to find a place where I guess it makes more sense, uh, I guess, where the, the median, like, you know, household income sort of kind of matches whatever we're making. Sure. Then, um, what, what could have happened differently to, I mean, seeing 
artists who were like so huge and like these icons like you know broke and like you know trying to figure it out is is heartbreaking what could have been done differently i don't know i i i I don't know um you know you you deal with the the um the cards on the table yeah there are so many you know issues that that we've dealt with as a people that serve as an overlay for all the decision making that, uh, that, that we engage in that it's hard to point to one, two, three factors that would have made things better. So, you know, moving back a hundred years, you know, if, um, the Tulsa race riots that burned down Black Wall Street yeah. don't happen, does that mean, and some of the others, Rosewood, um, and, and some of the other historical stories, uh, that we know of where black economies that existed after slavery during reconstruction that created thriving communities were destroyed from the exterior, were, were destroyed by the KK, by the KKK, by racism, white supremacy. If those circumstances don't happen, do we then have the historical confidence to keep on building so that when that money comes into the community in 1984, it's being invested into institutions within our community rather than, well, we don't have institutions within our community because if we build something, the white man's going to blow it down. So, sort of the, you know, the big bad wolf the theory. Fair, yeah. Yeah. So, so Tulsa would have become like some sort of proof of concept where they're like, okay, we can do this everywhere yeah. versus. Rather than yeah. it's going to be taken away from us one day. Now that didn't happen. In every circumstance, there um, are great stories about places like um, Haytine, North Carolina, which was Durham, North Carolina, which was sort of like Tulsa and didn't get burned down. But over time, the, the choices of the community and of the culture to integrate, mm-hmm. to determine that institutions outside of the community were more important to integrate into rather than developing the internal institutions that decimated those communities. Mm-hmm. I, I, we even saw it to a certain extent where I grew up on, uh, on Long Island mm-hmm. in uh, communities like Hempstead, where there were institutions and businesses within the community that were black owned and black run. But as segregation declined nationally and, and also on, on a local basis and the desire to integrate not necessarily to desegregate, to integrate into institutions exterior to the community just decimated those institutions within the community, just, you know, leaving you literally with nothing. So I get a big piece of change if I'm that, that big entertainer or athlete in the eighties or early nineties. I'm doing what I've been told and what the culture's been doing for the, the decades since the Tulsa, uh, uh, era which is to invest that money, that cash outside of the community rather than but internally. The, now, the what what separates the mentality of the guy who I, I was watching a, a interview with a it's like 90s Sir Mix-a-Lot who's still like very well off and he's doing okay to someone who maybe didn't invest their money or maybe didn't understand the business of, of music. What separates those guys in in terms of their mindset you know it's it's random 
you know, that, that could have been Mixlot's parents, his family, a neighbor or, or a teacher. You know, that's individualistic versus collective where everybody or a, a huge portion of, of those folks who made money from, from the culture, from entertainment, media, athletics, from, from that period. And I think things have gotten better today, but at least from the seventies, eighties, going through the early nineties, you know, people weren't thinking immediately as artists to, to be fiscally responsible, to invest, to look at their earnings as something that would, uh, grow, you know, based on, on their decision making beyond what they did on stage or on a mic. Or uh, in the studio. And responsibility probably didn't really even fit into what the culture was, right? right. You yeah. have like, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Living fast, die young kind yeah, of yeah. mentality. Get, get rich or die trying, somebody yeah. once said, right? Yeah. But I mean, I think he he's rich now. I think it, it worked out for him. I think it worked out for him. But the, there, it go, there it goes again, individual. Yeah, true. So back to Public Enemy, and I don't know how in-depth you want to go with this. It's funny sure. because... I just recently saw Flav in Vegas like uh, a couple of weeks ago yeah. um, at, at uh, CES. Um, Public Enemy, to what I understand and what I know about the band, kind of started off with this whole um, movement for the people, very political. If I were to think about a political rap group, they're like the first that come to mind. Very political, very... Um, pro-African-American, um, rebel kind of music, right? Correct. What do you think changed through the, the years to kind of have them end up where they are now, where it's just sort of like everybody's kind of in a place where this wasn't... It, it, was, it started off very idealistic, mm -hmm. and now it's something else. Uh, time, age, um, economics, all of the variables that, that we all deal with. Uh, mm -hmm. the culture change too. Yeah. You know, it was interesting because you're right. Um, the intent when we put Public Enemy together was to specifically create a, a music group that was as political in orientation is uh, for instance there was um a a punk group from england called the clash mm -hmm. and they were incredibly political in the in the early 80s so we wanted to develop a rap group that was sort of a a mashup or a mashup of um run dmc and the clash one that was popular like Run was. And for those years, you know, there was nobody more popular than Run DMC. Uh, you know, they were the Beatles of, of hip hop for us. And then to take the political energy of the clash to talk about issues of, of class, of, of race, um, of, of economics, of just placement in general, discrimination. To put it all together and, uh, and see what, what would happen. That was, you know, sort of our, our college school experiment from Adelphi University to, to do, uh, public enemy. Now, for 
a group that was explicitly political, you know, we did very, very well. Sold a lot of records. Public Enemy you know, has toured the world who knows how many times over the course of the past three plus decades. But the, the culture of hip hop, you know, the music in general radically changed from the point when the group debuted in the late eighties to, uh, where we, uh, we sit today. Um, I, I point to the changeover actually from public enemy X clan, uh, KRS one, poor righteous teachers, uh, the native tongues movement, which included De La Soul, Latifah and, um, tribe called quest. That's around 1989, 1990. That gets moved out really by the West Coast, by NWA going to all the death row stuff. And then there's sort of a boomerang effect where the East Coast had to match the energy of the West Coast, which is where Wu-Tang and Bad Boy you know, now come in. So that paradigm shift that, um, that happened in the, uh, the early 90s, you know, really set the, the tone for how we remember those great years for public enemy from 1987 to about 1990. Mm. Um, we don't remember them as strongly because there was just, you know, such a paradigm shift. The, the, the change in the music, I, I feel like was again, uh, maybe the, and I, I could be wrong. Uh, it went from like, Hey, we have to, there was still a, a sort of light optimism where it's like, you know, fight the power. We're very optimistic. Things sure. are going in the right path to, uh, the music kind of went to a place where it was like, okay, like we, we've been trying to fight the power. We're a little bit more pissed off now. We're a little bit more impatient. Well, Tupac. Yeah. Because by all rights, Tupac should have been Chuck D. He should have been Chuck D Jr. Yeah. You know, it, it comes from, he literally comes from the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I see him as an interesting bridge figure because rather than represent his political heritage, heritage and legacy, he decided to go in another direction, which is where that paradigm shift mm-hmm. that I talked about just overall. You know, moved everything to. So and he winds up being he, death row. I think he still touched on a lot of the same themes, even though musically it was very different and the language was different. But I think the, the spirit of a lot of it still kind of, I mean, they, they spoke about police brutality and like, you know, racism and stuff yeah, going sure, on. Yeah, sure, sure. And, you know, especially on his first album. Um, I think. Tupac represented what was a, I think, an internal struggle during those years of, you know, young men trying to figure out, well, what, you know, what is the direction here? You know, am I public enemy or, you know, am I death row? You know, which, which way can I be both? Can I navigate that? And, um, you know, that, that was a choice that those of us from the earlier generation didn't really have to make. Uh, and, and, you know, to a large measure, Maybe that's why some of us are still around today, because we didn't go through those intense internal battles. So, um, and it's crazy, just really quick, um, 
like MC Hammer was like on death row for like a little bit. Yeah, which is weird, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He tried to get on Def Jam. Yeah, yeah. He tried to. Yeah, he uh, he. I, I met him in 1986. Mm-hmm. He um, this is before he signed. Yeah, and I, I still have his business card um, from back then. From 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 back then, uh, we met at uh, the Black Radio Exclusive Music Conference in mm-hmm. Los Angeles in, in 1986. And he knew I didn't drink, and he didn't drink either, so he just kept on buying me uh, these cranberry juices, me and then trying to get together with my boss, Russell Simmons, at the same time. But, uh, you know, we we were East Coast guys, could not hear, you know, a dance, because, you know, there were no videos, and we didn't know he was going to be a dancing MC. We could only hear his demos, and he, I think he was still trying to develop and craft his, his MC style, which then matched all the dancing and, and made him what he was. It's it's crazy because um I remember as a kid how popular he was. Like very young. Like, you know, I remember when like five or six how popular he was and now he's kinda of like this precautionary too. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, and I don't know why. Because he was tremendous and you're right. Yeah. But he was tremendously successful. So around the time when um when he was at his height. Mm-hmm. And since I was a writer as well, I started actually writing about music before I was working at Def Jam. Uh, and occasionally I, I still do write. And uh, at that point I was still you know, doing some side pieces here and there. So, um, a, um, a, a hip hop, uh, publication asked me to travel out to interview, um, Hammer to find out and really get to the bottom of why he was trash. Mm-hmm. And I you know, and I came back to him. I said, well, I, you know, I, I, I can't do that because there are people who like him, who just because, you know, he doesn't touch our sensibilities doesn't mean that he doesn't please, you know, folks who are into to his music and they have a right to enjoy his music and he has a right to entertain them. So, you know, it, we had sort of an elitist point of view about what Hammer represented when, at the end of the day, he's selling 15 million copies of, of that album. I think the cautionary tale was more so in line with, like, him basically going bankrupt and... Well, that like, goes you know, to what we were talking yeah. about, though. That, um, you know, you get the money in... And like 30 you're young, or 40 people on payroll or something. You're, you're, like you're employing half of Oakland and mm-hmm. your, your family. And even though none of that economically makes sense, you know, when you have folks who haven't had these resources, mm-hmm. which means that we don't have the skill sets to manage these resources, it, it all becomes crossing your fingers as to whether or not you're going to maintain them or when that they're going to go bye-bye and you learn from that. And now I, I think the, the educational tale is that hammer has become a tech investor. Oh yeah. In, yeah. He was one area. of the first guys. He's yeah. actually who introduced me to Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. So he learned. Yeah. yeah. He, he learned. He so. came back, but I mean, yeah. uh, that, that story is not really told. Like it's sort of like, Oh, like, you know, but, you, went broke. but and we all go through it, but the, you know, the, the good thing is, and there's an old saying that the only bad experience is one that you don't learn from. So yeah, you lose all, all, all that money, but you figured out how to make the money at least one time, which means you might have the ability to make that money again, except manage it much better than you did the first time. 
Hopefully. Hopefully you, you hope that, that, you, that second you, go around. You absolutely hope. So what what took you from like hip hop to now consulting and, and working with um Mocha-fi Mocha-fi and, and, and finance? Some, yeah, yeah, sure. Um you know what what took me? I, I think it's all consistent. You know, being out here in, in Newark and, and working for a great young company like like Mochafi, led by Wale Coxum, to me is completely aligned and, and similar to what I did when I started working for Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons for Def Jam in the uh, in the mid nineties or mid nineties, listen to me. In the mid eighties. That um a a company, a young company with tremendous vision uh community based tapped into you know, where the the culture is going and where the society is going in the mid eighties it was the the culture of hip hop and in twenty twenty it's you know wealth management mm-hmm. you know it's us trying to figure out how do we navigate the uh tremendous racial wealth gap that that has existed now for decades if not centuries how do we employ our education how do we employ some of the resources that we have been able to access over the course of the past uh decades how do we raise money and how do we use all of these skills in order to to build our uh, communities well it i i'm it's funny because i i land a couple of places on on the the subject um i recently had a guest on and we were talking about i guess um wealth management and um anything having to do with finances in um our community because um i remember growing up talking about money was very uncomfortable it was sort of like a a taboo you don't talk about money mm-hmm. you know what i mean that's it's tacky. You don't, you don't compare. Like, you know, if you're working with someone, I have no idea what you're making because mm-hmm. it's tacky. Like, why would we, why would we talk about that? Like, that's, that's something like, you know, relatively, uh, private. And it was always this, um, well, how do we figure out how to, like, you know, like integrate and diversity and so on and so forth? Whereas I've sort of drifted a bit and gotten to the point where, I understand there's been like historical and systemic racism and feel free to jump in at any point. I understand that there's been like historic and systemic racism, but yeah, what it like, I mean, we don't have a time machine. There's nothing we can do about that. We're here now. We got to figure it out. Right. Well, why, why are you, why are you building what you've already built, which is already, you know, quite considerable, especially given your youth. Yeah. You know, what, What's pushed you to become entrepreneurial? Is it, is it the, is it the culture? Was it family? What, like why? I just learning. I don't mean to interview learning. you. No, I no, know no, this no, is no, your show. no. It's a conversation. No, we're, we're having a conversation. I hate interview format yeah. stuff, but, um, it's, it's mostly from, from my standpoint and my parents are immigrants. My parents are, are both Haitian mm-hmm. and I grew up with the mentality or this thing being drilled into me where it's like the world doesn't owe you anything. Sure. You know what I mean? You, you've got to figure it out. And their way of figuring it out was education. Like, you know, we came here to make sure you got your, your education. And I mean, I think at that point, there was still like, you know, these residual waves from that whole American dream that kind of started to manifest in like the, the fifties. Sure. 
And people still believed in that, even though I felt like around the time when my parents got here, they got here in like the 90s, it already started to begin to get eroded and we could get into that whole political thing. But Mm -hmm. nowadays, like, you know, we have the gig economy and that's been a a long time coming that a bachelor's degree doesn't guarantee you anything. Education is like a it's a tool, if anything else, a degree is a tool, if anything else, but it doesn't guarantee anything. And I knew if I was going to fail at something, I would rather bet on myself. So yeah, I kind of put my money where my mouth is and kind of figured it out. And, you know, if things go left, at least, you know, I, I tried kind of deal and ownership was very important to me. And investing in my and that's a key though because for and and you cited your your parents um you know background to to come to this country which is a crucial factor um of leaving one place where you feel uncomfortable and denied to go to some place where you perceive there will be increased opportunity which is there's something for and I know people use this term ADOS today, mm. but for you know African Americans who have been here, you know, since the the point of of chattel slavery, beyond the great migration of going from the South, as as my uh, paternal grandparents and great grandparents did from the South coming to New York, you know, there wasn't that other place of opportunity. There was just no opportunity. So when you think about ownership. You know, there, to me, that sounds like a residue of the choices of, of your parents looking yeah. for opportunity. For hundreds of years, for African Americans, those of, of Southern heritage coming from, um, slave trade, Jim Crow South, there wasn't that, 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 that rainbow of, of, opportunity consideration so you don't think ownership you think the closest thing you can get to is well maybe i'm going to get a job somewhere working for somebody who owns something or as as a side to that the government so there were no reference points at that point in terms of i see him doing it so i could maybe do it myself individual rather than environmental gotcha you know so yeah, there was Oscar Michaud, you know, the, the filmmaker. Uh, there was Madam C.J. Walker. Uh, fast forward you know, several decades and you get somebody, and we talked about him earlier, Percy Sutton, who was Malcolm X's lawyer, who built inner city broadcasting and WBLS and Showtime at the Apollo and owned the Apollo Theater, um, here in New York. You had these individuals, but, you know, for, for my childhood and, and, you know, educationally, you know, growing up in, in uh, Hempstead, Long Island, we weren't taught about entrepreneurs. We were taught get good grades, go to college, and you'll get a job somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I mean, mostly the same thing to me, but I mean, I think you can only pass down what you're aware of, and entrepreneurship wasn't a thing. I think the the question that kept nagging me as a kid was like, you know, because my parents always say, hey, you you grow up and you you like, you know, you go to school so you could get a job 
and it always seemed like this like endless cycle like so i get a job for what so mm-hmm. i can work so my kids can go to school so they could get a job yeah. so they can work and like, it just seems like like lemmings running off of a cliff and then i asked them but what about the guy who owns the job like like what about the guy that yeah. owns the building like what yeah. did he do yeah. yeah yeah and then they were like yeah we're not really yeah, yeah i don't know yeah. and then i was just like okay i gotta find out Sure. And, and same thing here. You know, my father, um, was one of the, uh, the first of the black people in corporate America generation. So, you know, he, he went to college. He went to city college in New York, then went into the military, went into the army, was stationed in Germany when he was, uh, like in his early twenties, like around, you know, 2021, then came back to work at Time Incorporated and Time Incorporated in 1954, as he came back, launched a new magazine called Sports Illustrated. And he worked in the mailroom as a a 20-something and worked his way up to being an editor in the uh, photography department, I think an associate editor. So, and interestingly enough, because he was really the sole African-American to work his way through the ranks to, you know, a, a level of, of executive. He also became the Sports Illustrated representative to many of the, the black athletic stars of that era. So he's the black man that they're sending, um, when there's a big Muhammad Ali fight against Sonny Liston. That's really cool. Oh, it's, it's, I mean, it was wonderful to see. He, you know, winds up being, um, for on um, the uh, the scene for photo shoots for O.J. Simpson and for Larry Holmes and for Reggie Jackson and, and, and all these folks. So, but he w- didn't rise above the position of associate photo editor. It's not like he became the photo editor or even the editor of the magazine. He was incredibly limited in that that regard, being one of the first generations of of black uh, black folks in corporate America. And, you know, it, it really impacted him in, uh, negatively in many ways. And I, I got to watch that impact to say, well, shouldn't I be developing my own version of Sports Illustrated, like my own institution, rather than relying on somebody rising yeah, me up, that, up the ranks? That's, that's, that's a little bit more complicated too, because I mean, I, I feel like that's, that's something lost in, in a more recent generation, like the understanding of like historical context and understanding you kind of stand on the, the shoulders of giants. Like the, the barrier of entry now is a lot lower than it was back then. A kid could go out and start a magazine now. The internet is like this, this great equalizer. Whereas back then. What we're doing right now, for instance. Yes. Yeah. I, I get the benefit of sitting with Reggie mm-hmm. to, to talk this way. Mm-hmm. Unless I was important enough to be interviewed on WBLS or CBS News or ABC News or PBS, I wouldn't be in the situation with lights and, and microphones and so forth. That's what huge institutions did. Mm. But now because of technology, you can essentially replicate what a multi Many multi-million dollar television network struggled to do as recently as two decades ago. You're doing it right here in Newark. Yeah. And the, the beautiful thing too is, um, 
it's funny because I talk to a lot of uh, small business owners and while you're figuring it out, you don't, there's no roadmap as entrepreneur. You're kind of like, you kind of could take a look at what other people are doing and kind of get an idea or the lay of the land. But yeah, for the most part, you're kind of figuring it out. The one benefit I would say to, to being a smaller company or a smaller business is mobility and, and speed. And it's crazy to watch small businesses try to mimic or, or copy the bureaucracy of a larger company. It's like you're kind of giving up the only advantage you have. Like okay. this is ridiculous. But again, a lot of people don't know any better. So if you're starting a, for instance, a, a media company or IT company or whatever, you're mimicking the, the brands that you've seen for years. But these guys employ like tens of thousands of people. It's just you and maybe three guys. Why do all three of you have to sign off on something? Like, you know, why would you sign up for all? And I think the, the lack of education, the lack of know-how and so on and so forth becomes uh, another barrier. But again, even that we're, we're figuring out, like, you know, you have a lot of information being, uh, put out. Um, it's a lot easier to access how to and so on and so forth. So hopefully it, it changes things. I, I don't know. Well, yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, you know, so we, we think of businesses or we historically have thought of business as, you know, something big and institutional yeah. with many bureaucracies and layers, so forth. But technology mm-hmm. has essentially democratized that process mm-hmm. where we can replicate what would have taken a, a company a hundred people to achieve may now take just you by virtue of these supercomputers that, that we walk around in our pockets. That's the theory behind Mocafy that you can develop a, a bank that can address the, uh, the issues of us not having access to, uh, to the financial world. That you can do that using technology. Yeah, shout and, out to those guys, man. Yeah. And, you know, 10, 20 years ago, we would have thought, well, you know, how, how can we build more banks within our community? It's just, I don't even well carry cash us. anymore. No, no. I don't even pull up my, my, my card because nine times out of 10, I'm yeah. just kind of you, using my phone. That, that's yeah. what you have, have that thing for. Yeah. So, nice. yeah. So, you know, whether it's that or even for music. So, you know, I um I salute um the companies and the artists in 2020 who um are uh, able to uh, to replicate what we did with LL Cool J and the Beastie Boys and Public Enemy and, and Slick Rick and Run DMC, you know, 35, 40 years ago. Because now you have now all those guys withstood like the test of time. Yeah, yeah, they have, and they've made the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And, you know, it's all wonderful and love. It, that, that's great, but you know, just by the just getting to the studio to record a song, just for Run DMC to record, it's like that in Sucker MCs in 1983 to raise the money as to get it from a record company, as Russell Simmons had to get for his brother. In 1983, from profile records from Steve Plotnicki and Corey Robert Robbins to get whatever it was, $5,000. Mm-hmm. Go to a studio, 
master the song and then get it pressed into and put it into stores, all of that, you can just do that now in about three hours just yeah. using your phone. That's true. That entire process has been reduced. What would have been a three-month process of five to $10,000 of, of investment now can be done and put up on SoundCloud just by virtue of an instinct. Now, here's the downside to that. It's great that everybody has a voice now, mm-hmm. but now everybody has a voice. That's right. So now it's it's a lot of noise and nonsense coming out also. That's right. Whereas when when Russell went out and he got it done, he was driven like, you know, I, I really need to get this done versus someone who has a mobile device and they're like, oh, let me just kind of see where this goes. And you don't really have the the um the mindset to sort of follow through with what this is you're just kind of like you know you you have a lot of people who are in search of a dream mm-hmm. right and that that might not necessarily have been a great thing the lowering of the barrier of entry at this point just kind of opens up like this floodgate where now everybody's like, well, this might be the easiest thing for me to do. I might not be necessarily passionate about it, but you know, everybody like when you, for instance, um, if we were to think back to um, television and when you had TV shows that were like, this was an event, like everybody ran home so they could catch this show and it wasn't on demand. If you missed it, you missed it. So you're sitting down with your whole family you can have a hit show then because it's not a lot of TV shows. That's right. Whereas now, I have too much to watch. That's correct. I'm literally going through Netflix and like Disney Plus, and it's just, it's just so much content. Yeah. I can't get to all of it. That's right. So that sort of becomes a, another barrier in of itself. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound like, you know, the, the old man, you know, get off my lawn. But yeah. I, I think it has made developing what we used to perceive as, as that central star mm-hmm. um, incredibly difficult because, to your point, the marketplace is saturated mm-hmm. because of the democratization. The democratization. The making easier. Yeah, I hit that wall too. <laughs> yeah, now I'm happy. Yeah. The it, making the process uh, so much easier. So that three month process of getting the investment money, getting signed to a record company, getting the record pressed, then getting into stores, then getting it onto a radio station, then getting people to get to the record store to buy it. That was a natural filtering process. Not everybody could do that. Not, yeah. not everybody could do that. That's, that's all gone. It's now anybody putting something on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud. So there, in essence, isn't any filtering process. So even if you are that great artist, you're going to be battling. You have to work harder. Yeah. You are going to be battling. And I, and I yeah. see these online discussions. Oh, for Normani you know, having issues and Megan the Stallion having issues trying to get her stuff out and Daniel Caesar and all, you know, 
it's more difficult than ever yeah. because of, of what I you I think referenced. they have some some contract stuff, and I, I think that's like education as far as the, the whole Megan thing. I, but um, excuse the 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 language, but um, when it, it's harder to kind of figure out who's who's full of shit, you know, it is. Here's a, it is. a great story, Ice Ice Cube, and I I I try to ingest and and digest and all that. Um, as much content as possible. And Ice Cube was telling a story about, um, John Singleton and, um, Boys in the Hood. And he said when John Singleton first approached him, I don't know if you heard the story. John Singleton was actually intern at the Arsenio Hall show. Mm-hmm. So when John Singleton first walked up to him and said, Hey, I have this screenplay and there's this role that you'd be perfect for. Ice Cube was like, what? Like, what are you talking about? He, he stood and talked to him because. He really wanted to get um, his group on to the Arsenio Hall show. So he was kind of putting up with John because John was helping him find Arsenio. Mm-hmm. And John's like, hey, I'm a freshman at uh, UNC. And like, you know, I I want you to be in this movie. Mm-hmm. And Ice Cube's like, yeah, come on, man. Like, you know, whatever. Fast forward. Um, I think he's doing some type of release or something or something's going on. He bumps into him again. Bumps into uh, John Singleton. John Singleton's like, "Hey, I'm a I'm a junior now. I still have the script. Mm-hmm. I would love for you to be in it." And Ice Cube's still kind of like brushing him off. Fast forward a couple of years, his manager calls him and says, "Hey, they're doing this movie. They kind of want you to come in and and read for it." He said, "Of course." Like you know, he gets the script, so on and so forth. Goes in, reads for it. Who does he see sitting there? John Singleton. Mm-hmm. And he was like, "Listen, man, I told you." I had this role for you. And I mean, I'm thinking about John Singleton in that moment and how satisfying that must have been to be like, dude, I like I was completely serious. Like sure. the, the look on Ice sure. Cube's face. And of course, like, you know, the rest is history, but that that says to me that he had this this incredible drive and there was a a fortitude where he was like he wouldn't be denied That's this right. thing. Yeah. And now anybody with a camera phone could kind of just shoot something. Which is cool because you you have talented people who otherwise might have not been found, but at the same time the noise. Yeah. And the nonsense. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Um uh resistance builds muscle. Yeah. Right. So you make the process easier then you're not building as much muscle in order to get done what you need to get done. Yeah, I, I had the uh, two things. Um, I had a similar experience with Spike Lee. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's 1986. Spike Lee comes in after um, his one of his first films, She's Gotta Have It. Actually, it hadn't come out yet. It's about to come out. And he has a meeting with uh with Def Jam to talk about producing and directing music videos for the label. So I'm um, I'm sitting at my desk. We're at 40 East 19th Street uh, in this big um dance studio that uh, served as as our office at, at that point. Um and um you know he's just waiting to uh, to have a meeting and they just kept him waiting forever. They didn't know who he was. No one really knew. He was kind of just right out of NYU. And she's got to have it had not come out yet. Now, I had a friend, the wonderful writer and producer Nelson George, who is an investor and she's got to have it. 
um, who had told me about Spike already and about the movie about to come out. So, you know, I, I was the only one in the office who was aware of who he actually was. And I told him, Hey, you, you know, I, here I am, Bill Stephanie. I, I work for Def Jam. Uh, I do promotions, which is what I did at that point. Um, and, um, yeah, I can't wait to see your, uh, your new film. And he said, wow, you know about it? I said, yeah, uh, she's got to have it. I, you know, I, I can't wait. So, um, he has the meeting with, um, with Def Jam, with, uh, uh the leadership of, of the company. Nothing really happens from it, but we stay in touch. And within a month or two, I, I let him know, well, uh, I'm working on this uh, project that I'm producing with my college classmate from uh, Adelphi, Chucky e. D. Um, we're calling the group Public Enemy and, and it's, you know, politically oriented. They said, really, really, will you send me stuff when, when you guys are done? So I started to send him stuff and we even printed up some, uh, uh, some sweatshirts with the Public Enemy logo that Chuck designed and sent it to him. And when he, uh, directed and produced School Days, you'll see a scene with uh, Branford Marsalis, who's in the movie, he's wearing the sweatshirt that, uh, that we sent to him. So, um, that relationship continued, you know, just by virtue of, you know, two people who love the music, love the culture, um, love creativity and, you know, wanted to push things further. So when he, uh, came to me, rode on his bicycle from his, apartment to my apartment in, in Brooklyn. We lived about five, six blocks away from one another. He says, I have this script I want you to check out. It's about the hottest day in, in Brooklyn and all sorts of stuff is going to jump off. Check it out. Check it out. Check it out. I said, okay, well, what do you want me to do? I want Public Enemy to make a song that will drive everything in the movie. Check it out. Check it out. Check it out. And that winds up being fight the power for, for do the right thing. So, you know, whether it's uh, Ice Cube and John Singleton, Public Enemy. You being involved in that process is like, and you say it like super casually, but that's crazy. Because that, man, that was the era. Um, so, and now to Ice Cube. So Ice Cube beefs with NWA mm -hmm. and leaves the group. Yeah. You know, over all, all sorts of issues. Says he wants to, um, create his solo album, uh, you know, signing to directly to priority records. He's going to do his own solo album, but because he's beefing with NWA, he can't work with Dr. Dre and Yella. So his second favorite production team was Public Enemy's production team, us, mm -hmm. the bomb squad. Mm -hmm. So he comes to New York and he meets with us. And even though I had removed myself from um everyday production from the bomb squad because I was now running uh, Def Jam. Nonetheless, we're we're meeting with him. So many of the strategy well, I won't say many, but a couple of the strategy meetings um around Ice Cube's first album, America's Most Wanted, actually happened in my living room in Brooklyn. That's crazy. Just because that we were everybody was around. And and it was it was probably like a, a smaller world, whereas now entertainment's yeah, like you yeah, know just a yeah, jillion people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what what do you feel in you kind of 
lent to this this longevity whereas like so many people are falling out of the industry or they like you know things didn't work out as well for them you seem pretty well adjusted like you know you're like you know happy like you know family man still have that optimism we talked about what helped you maintain that through the years hmm. oh man that's a good question um i love music just as long as it's grooving, that's what they said on the record, you know, well before you were born. Um, it, you know, for, and I was a musician too. You know, I, I played guitar, drums, trumpet keyboards. I was in bands when there were still bands. I'm, I'm from that era. The, the feeling that you get when, when there's a great beat, great melody, great rhyme, great vocalist hearing Luther sing live. You know, all that stuff. I mean, that's just, that's like a, a cosmic spiritual energy. That, that keeps you going. And then the other stuff that we've already talked about of, of having, being nurtured by great parents in a, in a great community. And now to your point, you know, being a family man, to having a wonderful wife, having incredible kids, you know, all of these things are fuel that, that, that keep you going. And maybe, you know, maybe it's my own traditional, fairly traditional, boring, nerdish life. But, you know, it's, it's, you know, sort of the tortoise and the hare, you know, the, the slow turtle that continues forward and, and, and so runs you, the race and So you never wins. subscribe to that live fast, die young situation. No, I, you know, I, as I tell everybody, there, um, you, you know, mentioned I'm, you weren't drinking. So. Unlike NWA, there are no, no videos of, you know, Bill Stephanie wet and wild parties in Brooklyn mm. from, from 1989. I mean, you know, I wasn't an angel, mm. but, you know, in terms of that crazy excess sort of life, it, you know, just mm. never really appealed to me. Mm. I mean, it, um, not to beat a dead horse, but, um, that whole Flav getting kicked out of Public Enemy thing. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, what was your reaction to that? Uh, stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, yes, Public Enemy has, has gone through, you know, all sorts of, uh, different configurations. Um, you know, Different lineups, folks have retired, come back in, gone back out, uh, so forth. But, um, you know, we, we all, we all grow and we all, a lot of times we're not the same person that we were, you know, 35 years ago. Yeah. I, because I'm boring, mm -hmm. you know, I'm probably a little closer, but I'm not the, the same guy I was when I lived down the street from Biggie, mm -hmm. um, you know, when I was 27, 28 years old and he was just a teenager and I'm running away from uh, the junior mafia standing on the corner of, mm -hmm. uh, of Fulton in Washington. That's nuts. Because they're, they're yelling at me, yo, Mr. Def Jam. I have my Def Jam jacket on. Yo, Mr. Def Jam, Mr. Def Jam. I said, well, you know, they're crack dealers. I don't think I should be hanging out here. Let me get out of here. But as it turned out, mm -hmm. you know, that's Biggie and Little C's and and, and all those guys, I would have destroyed their career because I would have lectured them on yeah, <laughs> yeah. on their lyrics. Yeah, you know, you wouldn't have heard "Warning" mm. if uh, if they had been it's signed crazy. to it's my, one of my favorite songs. <laughs> it's one of my favorite said, songs. Why do y'all need to do this you know, in mm. order for our community to uplift itself? Yeah, you know, I would you have know. been that guy. I mean, hip hop's created like ridiculous wealth, and it's it's one of those. I feel like 
when you're looking at African Americans to be such a small like demographic globally for us to impact culture on the world stage in such a big way mm-hmm. is like insane. It's amazing. And then to turn around and then look at the numbers and kind of realize we own very little of it is is kind of unfortunate too. Yeah, yeah, and I think the two are tied because we were so denied structurally and institutionally. You know, we focused we focused so much of that energy creatively. You know, much of that driven by the black church for a hundred plus years. Not as much today, though, by the way. Um, so yeah. Um, and maybe as we're figuring out things more these days from a business standpoint, maybe you're not going to see that fixation on innovation and creativity as you saw before. So, you know, we're all, it's all a delicate balance, I think. All right. So not to, I'm not going to monopolize your, your time too it's much. It's fine. And, having a good time. Yeah. Um, but I, to like, you know, in, in nearing the end and, um, closing, I wanted to get your thoughts on something that I've always been a, a big proponent of, which is ownership. To the, the young entrepreneur who's figuring things out, um, and debating about whether or not to, um, sell their IP or whatever. Don't get me wrong. Like, you know, if somebody pulls up and offers me a check, I'm. You gotta take yeah, that check. Yeah, I'm taking that check. I believe very, very firmly. If I can build something, like if I if I sell you this bottle, I, I haven't sold you my ability to make this bottle. I've just sold mm. you the bottle. If if you knew what you were it. doing, mm. you can do it again. Yeah, pretty much. You know, the key to science is replication. That and like you know, I I might I used to always say, yeah, I'm never going to retire, so on and so forth. But I'm kind of tired now, man. I could take a couple months off. Um, how important is ownership to you? And just in general, um, in in this society as it's structured, yeah, it's everything, you know, it, because it's control. And that's the, if that's if, the, the word, right? Yeah, there. yeah, Janet Jackson, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it, and and if you don't have the control, so someone else will have that control. So, and hence the the leverage it, in. Without question. And with that control comes freedom. My ability, uh, the ability for you and I to get together today and have this conversation is probably at, in the middle of the afternoon is based on the fact that we're both entrepreneurs. Yeah. Versus if I had my nine to five and you had your nine to five, mm-hmm. um, you know, we would be beholden to the, dictates of our bosses i still might jobs. be here i was a horrible employee i was <laughs> the right, worst there, yeah. i was the, the worst employee the, 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 no. well you know aside, i always felt like i was smarter than the guys i worked for and that's good to know yeah you know that that's I, and i've had friends who have worked for individuals where i've had to pull them to the side and, and you know, explain them the reason why you're so frustrated is because you know you're smarter than your boss. Yeah. So shouldn't that compel you to figure out how to leverage your intellect and your abilities 
to become your own boss, like the guy you're mad at. Yeah, but that's that's scary because I would liken being an entrepreneur to somebody who jumps out of the window while figuring out how to build the parachute. Like you, you don't know how you're going to land. You don't know if you're going to have the parachute in time to land. So, like, I mean, it's it's a scary thing. It, it is a scary thing, but we're starting to figure it out. Should the economy not completely tank due to yeah. the coronavirus? I feel like I'd still figure it out. I yeah. think I, I'd still. Well, that's good. It the yeah. con- confidence is man. That, that there's is always a good. silver lining. Yeah, that, that yeah. optimism. Yeah. Again, yeah. ain't no stopping us now. Yeah. Keep keep on. Keep I, rising to the top. I, I would replace the the us with with me. I don't I mean I, Sounds of blackness, yeah. optimistic. The the community, I don't know, but I yeah. I'll figure it out. Yeah, you will. You have already. Yeah. That's why we're here. Yeah. Well, um I wanna thank you again for, for sitting down with me. Um you gotta frame that picture on your phone. Like, if you don't have <laughs> I, a frame, copy, I send it to you, know, right? Didn't yeah, I send did. that picture to you? Yeah, you you yeah. gotta, you gotta frame that that cool. picture and and put it somewhere, man. That's that's epic. It's cool. like he had a picture. It was like Chris Rock. It was uh, Russell Simmons, Rev Run, Spike Lee. I'm like, it's that's crazy. Can't we shit. show it? Can't we show? Can this is video? I'm right? going, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put the rights. picture up yeah. on the video. I'm, I'm gonna put the picture. Yeah, up. put the picture. But, up, um, yeah. Thanks so much for for coming out, Bill. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Catalyst Case. This is Reg, and you're listening to Thought Hack.